The word of our Lord from the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. The word of our Lord now from the epistle to the Ephesians. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as all the others. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made by the flesh of hands, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh, that's the flesh of Jesus, the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, so that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together 
for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We thank you for it. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us this morning through your word. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, the expectation that God would redeem fallen humanity is unmistakable. He would not leave us lost and broken. He would come to rescue us and to restore us. That has been His purpose from the very beginning. From the moment of the fall, God's intention was to not leave us alone, but to pursue us, to rescue us. How exactly He intended to do this wasn't quite clear at first. There were shadows of it, whispers of it. Some say even in uh, as early as Genesis chapter 3, uh, when Yahweh is, is speaking to the serpent, that there's a, a glimmer of a prophecy that the, that the Christ would come, the Messiah would come, uh, as he tells the serpent that, that one would come, a seed of the woman would strike his head, but he would strike that one's heel. But there again, early in the Old Testament, you just have hints that God would do something to restore his people. How exactly he intended to do so wasn't quite so clear at first. But as you draw near to the end of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, the worship book of the Old Testament, uh, and the prophets, those who are calling Israel to repentance and telling them that God's judgment is coming, but the judgment is always in the purposes of God. Judgment is always to bring healing. It's never just vindictive and spiteful. It's always to purge and to purify, to heal and to cleanse. So especially in the Psalms and the prophets, what begins to become increasingly more clear is that Yahweh will redeem humanity by sending one he calls his Messiah. Now that word Messiah, it's an interesting word. It's, it's Hebrew for the word anointed. It's the, the, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're not giving Jesus a last name. We're actually using a title um, to represent who he is. You, you might even say when you come across that phrase Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in the New Testament, you could easily uh, translate that Jesus the Christ or the Christ, Jesus. Um, because Christ is simply the anointed, the Lord's anointed, the one that, that, that Yahweh has, has put His Spirit upon to do a particular work, namely the Messiah. Uh, that work was to redeem Yahweh's people, to bring them back from their lostness and to, uh, to make way for what God then intends to do because there's more than just the work of Jesus that is being hoped for in the Old Testament there's more than that this Messiah would come to atone for humanity in other words to to bring reconciliation between God and man to to atone for humanity's sins he would come to atone 
in order to send Yahweh's spirit into the human heart. Remember, we've been saying, especially these last couple of weeks, that God meets us at the point of our need. And what becomes increasingly clear in the Old Testament, again, especially in the Psalms and the prophets, is that the deepest point of the human need is the human heart. Not the ticker living within our chest, but that that Hebrew word for heart is our core, the core of our inner being, the very center of our personality, the very center of who we are. In the Hebrew world, the heart thinks, the heart feels, the heart decides, the heart wills, the heart, it is out of the heart that everything else springs forth. It's why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, in other words, whatever's in that heart, the mouth speaks. Um, And so, the Messiah would come to atone for the human race so that he could get God's spirit into the human heart, into the core of who we are at the very, the very center point, ground zero of our problem, our sin. So once the Messiah atoned for our sin, Yahweh would then personally take up residence within his people through his Holy Spirit. You remember that's been God's concern since the very first, first pages of the Old Testament is that he would be with his people. It's why he came walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. It's, why, it's what that from which Adam and Eve hid, fearful of the presence of God in their fallen state, fearful of what it might mean to be near God in their nakedness and in, even more than their physical nakedness, in their, the spiritual nakedness of their sin. The prophets make very clear to us that what we need and, um, is not just for someone to, 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 to say it's okay, not just someone to say you're, we, can, we, can, um, we can undo the fall, but instead someone who can remake us. And what the prophets make clear to us is that that work of remaking, that work of renewal will come not just through the Messiah, but by the Messiah who would then send the Spirit. And so we come across that Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit or breath or wind. The Greek equivalent is the word pneuma. And as the Old Testament speaks of the Spirit of God, it's sometimes translated as breath or as wind, uh, you remember the prophets hearing about the wind um, uh, in the older prophets, I should say, in, in Samuel and, and, and whatnot, that, that you have that term ruach being translated as wind oftentimes. You remember in the creation narrative that God breathed into man the breath of life. That could easily be translated, just, just as easily be translated, the spirit of life. It is the Ruach that Yahweh tells Ezekiel to command. He says, Son of man, command, speak to the Spirit, speak to the wind, speak to the breath, and tell that Spirit to breathe over these slain corpses that are filling the valley of Ezekiel chapter 37. 
So Christ came to atone for our sin, to make a way for redemption in us, but also so that he might send his Holy Spirit to undo the works of the fall, to remake the human heart, to restore us in what the Old Testament calls the image of God, his likeness, so that we might know him and love him and reflect him. And the Gospels declare to us that Jesus is Yahweh's Messiah. He is the Christ who was to come. You remember when, uh, when at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is speaking to Mary and then to, or to, to Martha and then to Mary, I believe is the order. Um, when he says, do you believe this? The response is, yes, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the one who is to come into the world. You are the one for whom we have waited. And the Gospels are declaring to us that Jesus is indeed that one. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the one who's come to make a way for us to, to be restored in relationship with Yahweh. But he's also the one who had come so that the Spirit could come. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus' miraculous birth, of his public ministry of teaching and preaching, of his claims to be the Messiah, which are then substantiated by various miracles. He's able to walk on water. He's able to heal the sick. He's able to raise up the dead. He's able to feed multitudes of people with hardly anything. He speaks to the elements and they respond. And they tell the story of his betrayal, his suffering, and death by crucifixion. And they leave at that point with the story of disciples who are without hope because all of their hopes that they had hung on this one who was to be the Messiah seemed to be dashed to the ground with his death. But then they declare to us that completely unexpectedly, to a, to a first century Hebrew, completely unexpectedly, Jesus rose from the dead of his own power. Sure, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus was raised to life to die again. They tell us the story of his resurrection, which is... Not just coming back from the dead, but actually the, the uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says he went through death and came out the other side, never to die again. So he rose from the dead and his resurrection stands as the, the point of vindication for him as the Messiah. Not one who was ultimately defeated, but one through submitting to defeat would ultimately defeat sin, death, and hell. So his resurrection in the Gospels is vindication for him as being the Lord's Messiah and therefore being the Redeemer of mankind and as Paul puts it, rightfully Lord. He is Lord. There is no other. There is no other name that is given above that name and Paul says that at his name, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is above all because of his resurrection.
So I want to stop now and ask, have I lost you at any point yet? Is there anything I need to make clearer? How about the, the resurrection being unexpected? Did that throw anybody? Oftentimes, the reason I stop and, and ask that is because oftentimes when we think about the resurrection of, of Jesus, we're stunned by how stunned the disciples were. You know, Jesus had told them that he was going to suffer and die and that he would be raised back to life. But they still seemed completely surprised by it. And the reason was because you'll notice the word resurrection is nowhere found in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament idea. There, again, are shadows of certainly God's not going to leave us at death. Certainly God is still Lord over his people even as they die. Uh, but there's really not much said about the afterlife. There's not much said, certainly not much said about coming back to life, our bodies coming back to life after death in the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of resurrection was, was a, uh, a, a, a theological concept that was developed in the intertestamental period. After the Old Testament, as the Pharisees and Sadducees come on the scene uh, during those 400 years between Malachi and uh, the last of Israel's prophets and, um, and the ministry of John the Baptist in the New Testament, you've got 400 years of, of theological development that's going on, and suddenly you get to the New Testament, and everyone seems to be talking about the resurrection. What resurrection? Where do they get that? Well, they got it from the biblical scholars in, the, uh, in that intertestamental period. But what they expected, what the Hebrew people expected, was that at the last day, when... when Yahweh was putting all wrongs to right when he was fixing everything that was broken that at that point all of the dead would be raised back to life and then they would be judged. No one in the first century, let alone Jesus' disciples, no one expected a resurrection to happen before the last day. And so... And there, in fact, before Jesus came on the scene, there were several great leaders in Israel who rose up, tried to fight off the, 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 the Greeks, and then tried to fight off the Romans, but they were all killed and their, their movements were squashed, essentially. And so when Jesus is crucified, it doesn't matter that he was talking about coming back to life after dying, he was dead. That seemed like the end of it, the end of the ride. And they certainly didn't, and and if he isn't alive, if he is ultimately defeated by the Romans, is he really the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one who the Lord sent? And so they didn't expect him to, to resurrect from the dead, despite him trying to get them to understand that he would. And so when he does, their minds are blown. You remember, um, I think it was, I think it was Martha, that uh, Jesus was speaking to when he says, "Where is it?" Yeah, it, it's it's to Martha. It was Martha who said, "Yes." 
Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. But before that, he told her, your brother will rise again. And she said, well, yes, of course. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And he tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So, Martha, a good and faithful Jew and a follower of Jesus, expected the resurrection to happen at the very, very end, at the day of judgment. Not in the middle of human history with the death of the Christ. The early theologians in the church, as they began to wrestle with the, the person and the work of Jesus and the person and work of the Holy Spirit um, and, and how they relate to Yahweh, the one true God, began to, to, to use kind of a metaphor to speak of them. And they spoke of Jesus and the Spirit as the two hands of Yahweh uh, that that. Through the Christ, Yahweh is to do a work, the work of atonement, the work of redemption. And through his spirit, he is to do a work. He is to do the work of applying that atonement and bringing about the the fullness of that redemption in the life of the believer. And so as we think about the personal work of, of Jesus, the Messiah, and of the Holy Spirit, let's think about them as as accomplishing what Yahweh has intended from the beginning, completing his work. And when we think of Jesus as the Messiah, we think of him as God with us, for he is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. He is God in our midst, and he is God for us. For through the Messiah, God is accomplishing something in our behalf, namely atonement. And when we think of atonement, it's helpful to think of four, four different images that might help us better understand what's going on in atonement. It, it, it's really interesting that throughout 2,000 years of church history, the church has never, tried to ex- has never tried to define how atonement works completely. What they've offered for us are various theories, not like scientific theories, but various models or images uh, to help us better understand what's going on in Christ, God with us and God for us. And so they can, there are several of them. You could probably list at least 12 distinct ones, but these four really kind of, uh, kind of cover all the basics and um, all the others that you could come up with probably relate to, to one of these four in particular. But the first and, and perhaps the earliest theory of the atonement or image for the atonement is, is a fancy word, recapitulation. Now you may think that sounds like a highly technical word. Have you ever spoke of recapping something? Like let's recap the game or let's recap what we've been going over these last nine weeks before you take an exam. Recapitulation is about reheading or, or reordering it's about going back over or going back through. And I've, I've given you various passages of Scripture off to the right in your handout so that you can go and read through those passages. Some of them are very lengthy. Some of them are very short. But please, in your, in your time this afternoon or in the, the coming days of the week, go back through and read these passages and see if, if, if you're following where they're leading because they're giving us 
a variety of language and variety of, of images about what's going on in Christ and in the Holy Spirit for us as God's people. But when the early church talked about Jesus as recapping humanity, they were speaking of his identity as a new head of the human race. Someone who's come to restore, someone who's come to undo what Adam did. So Paul talks about Jesus as a second Adam or as a a last Adam. And so the Gospels tell us in their earlier chapters about Jesus going through uh, the human experience so that he can recap or, or so that he can participate in the full human experience. They tell us about his baptism. They tell us about his temptations. And they tell us about him going out into the, into the lives of those that are broken and lost and forgotten because Jesus has come to reorder and to undo what the fall has done. And he does that as a new representative of the human race. Someone in whom we can put our faith so that we find new life in Him. A life that is substantially different from the old life that we've inherited in Adam. Another image to help us understand what's going on in the atonement is that of Jesus as our substitute, one who would come and suffer and die in our behalf. He speaks of himself as being given as a ransom or giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, many is not an exclusive term. It's not, well, for these many that that I've decided upon. Many is, is a metaphorical way of saying one for the sake of many. One person for the sake of a collective or the sake of of an unnumbered number of people. And so he gives himself as a ransom. He gives himself as a substitute in our behalf. He surrenders his life on the cross, dying for our sins so that he might redeem us from our sins. And in doing that, the the New Testament makes very clear he has become victorious in our behalf. By submitting to defeat, he ends up winning. He ends up defeating, not being defeated himself, but he ends up defeating our enemies. Sin, death, and hell. The New Testament uses a variety of of. Of, uh, of terms and a variety of images to help us understand that he triumphs over even making a mockery or making a, a spectacle of our enemies through his resurrection. And Paul says that if we have died with him by participating through faith in baptism, if we have died with him, then we will also be raised with him. That we one day will be raised, our bodies will be raised from the dead as his is. But also even now, by faith, we are raised up to new life in him. Because he has been victorious as our atoning sacrifice. He has triumphed over those things that had defeated us. And you can't get away from the fact that he is presented to us as an example, as a model, as, as Paul calls him, the man 
the archetype of humanity, what redeemed humanity looks like, what it looks like to live as the image bearer of God. He is our example. Peter tells us to follow in his steps, even as we suffer to follow in the steps of Jesus. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, giving, giving instructions for how we are to live as people of faith and as faithful people of Yahweh. So in the Messiah, in Jesus, God is with us in our midst, living and breathing, eating, sleeping, doing what we do. He is with us, and He is also God working for us in our behalf. I, let's, I, I should have mentioned that warning that's on your paper there um, before we got into this. There is a problem with compartmentalization. And uh, anytime we... Anytime we talk about the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, it's hard to separate out who's doing what and which one's doing this this other thing. Um, it, it's helpful for us to, to keep in mind that anytime God is involved in anything, He is fully involved in it. And so when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him submitting himself to the will of the Father by the power of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to, uh, to, to think of, of what's going on in the New Testament uh, without seeing all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together in, in unity and working together in symphony with one another um, in fact, in the passage we read from Ephesians, you see very clearly that Paul is, as he's talking about what Christ has done, it's always directing us back to the Father, but it's always telling us that this is happening by the power of the Spirit. You've got that beautiful, um, that beautiful summation of the triune work in the life of redemption there in verse 18. For through Him, that is Jesus, for through Jesus, the Son, we we both, that is Gentiles and Jews, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And so, anytime you try to isolate the work of Jesus from the work of the Spirit and from the work of the Father, you end up with very weird things going on in theology, such as Jesus being abandoned by the Father um, in the cross, such as... Uh, the Father pouring out all this rage and wrath on Jesus, and Jesus kind of just passively taking it. Um, you've got uh, um, you've get, you've got Jesus kind of floating along in the Gospels, exercise not exercising any divine power or anything like that. And so, um, bear in mind that as we talk about the life of Jesus, you can't help but see that he constantly is referring himself back to the Father. He has come not to do his own will, not even to speak his own words, but to do the will of the Father, to do what he sees the Father doing, to say what the Father is wanting to say through him. And he's constantly talking about um, how the Spirit will come and, and bring about the work of Christ into the life of the believer in in uh, in submission to the will of the Father as well. When we get to 
the work, person and work of the Holy Spirit, it's helpful to think of the Spirit as God working in us and God working through us. It is the, the Spirit is God at work in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And what he's doing is he is taking what Christ has done in our behalf, atoning for us, and he is applying that through the work of renewal. And it's helpful to think of that work of renewal really as a, as a fourth stage of working in our lives. And there may be a kind of a sequential order to them. I've placed them in a sequential order here on your handout. But throughout the life of the believer, these works are being done by the Holy Spirit in our lives and through the life and ministry of the church. The first work that the Spirit does in our lives is the work of justification, forgiving us of our sins, opening up to us new possibilities, opening up to us the opportunity for new life, which is regeneration, uh, wiping away the guilt, wiping away um, the sins of our past, justifying us, giving us freedom, giving us forgiveness. In doing that, He then infuses us with new life breathes back into us the breath of God and um, giving us what the New Testament calls new birth, regenerating us, giving us new life. And that new life is always in Christ. Paul says, if any man is in Christ, there is new creation. All things have been made new. All the old has been done away with and all things have become new if any man is in Christ. It was Jesus who said to Nicodemus who came to him in the dark of night, so teacher, we know that you've come from God. No one can do what you're doing except God be with him. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. There he's talking about this idea of regeneration, this idea of new life which is what the Spirit comes to do in, in bringing us forgiveness of sins. He also brings to us new life in Jesus. And that new life means that we've been born again into a new family. Um, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption, through whom we cry out, Abba, Father, through whom we cry out, that God is indeed our Father. He says that if the Spirit is in us, then we have new life. And if the Spirit is in us, then we are made co-heirs with Christ. We share in His Sonship. He makes us sons and daughters of God the Father. The Spirit really... In, in the moment of faith, when we give ourselves and surrender ourselves to the work of God's Spirit, and we, give our, we, we talk of giving our lives to Jesus, inviting Jesus into our lives, in a moment, these four things come to a head. He forgives us of our sins, of our sins. He gives us new life, and suddenly we are made children of God. 
for we are filled with the life of God. And that life always comes to cleanse. It always comes to heal. It always comes to make holy. You remember in the Old Testament, holy places and holy times, holy seasons, holy people. They were holy because they were they were made for the presence of God and they were filled with the presence of God. And so for something to be holy, it had to be given to God. And for it to be given to God meant it had to be cleansed and prepared for his presence because the presence of the divine was going to rest upon that holy place, in that holy moment, within that holy person. That is the work of sanctification. The, 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 the process or the act of making something holy, of cleansing it, of washing it. And so in the moment that we give our lives to Christ, that, 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 that He comes to dwell in us through His Holy Spirit, our sins are forgiven, we're given new life in Him, we're made children of God, and the beginning work of cleansing and healing within the human heart, that beginning, uh, that work has begun to happen in that moment. Beyond there, obviously, the Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do in our lives, a lot of cleaning up, a lot of, of rearranging uh, the priorities and orders of our life, of breaking us of our self-will, of, of freeing us from sin that is hidden deep down within us, that we hide from others, that we even hide from ourselves, certainly hide from Him. Um, and so that process of sanctification continues even to the point of death. But there does come a point later in the life of the believer where we realize that there's, that there's sin that remains within us. Though we are a child of God, though we've been forgiven of our sins, though we've been made new in Him, though God has done a lot of work of cleaning us up, we, we are brought to the point where we realize there's still something within us. There's still that divided heart is what the scriptures call it. A, a heart that is divided against God that's not completely his, that's partially his, perhaps even mostly his, but there's still something in, in our lives that we keep from him, that we hide from him, that we protect from him. And it may not even be a specific thing. Really what it is, is it is self-will. Where we want our own way. We want what we want. And not even God can keep us from it. As the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Thanks be to God who through Christ is able to to make us completely new. Not just partly new, but completely new. And he does that through the work of his two hands, the hand of the Messiah and the hand of the, of the Spirit. God is making us to be his people who are fit for his presence, who are able to be holy because we belong to Him and because we are not just devoted to Him, but we are filled with His presence.
How about now? Where have I lost you? It's been a lot of material that we've moved through today. Uh, really, it's been a lot of material that we've moved through these last eight or nine weeks. But um, is there anything in particular that, uh, any particular questions you have this morning? The invitation, obviously, is for us to surrender ourselves to the work of God in our lives. To trust in Him and to give ourselves to Him. To give ourselves to the work of Jesus through His Holy Spirit as He wants to work in us and among us and through us. And... Um, uh, he invites us to be completely His, to, to surrender ourselves to Him, to submit ourselves to Him, and to relinquish the rights of our lives, really, to Him, so that He might complete His work of cleansing and, and forgiving and healing and giving new life so that we might be not just His children, but might also take on that family resemblance so that we would learn to live as he lives. Remember, that was the promise of the prophets in the Old Testament, that God would take out of us the heart of stone and would put within us a heart of flesh, a heart that, 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 that sees the world as God sees it, a heart that is submissive to him, that loves others as, as we love ourselves, that loves God completely and fully. Not a heart that that's hardened and 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 um, obstinate against His work, and so He invites us to surrender ourselves to the complete work of the Holy Spirit within our lives, bringing into the the subjectivity of our lives the objectivity of what Christ has done in our behalf. And so He's with us, He's for us, He's in us, and He's through us through the work of His two hands, the Messiah and the Spirit. Let's pray.